Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Cypher Skin and a very special guest, Saloni Datani, who was a PhD student and founding editor of the Works in Progress online magazine and an editor at Stripe Press. She's also a science writer and researcher at Our World in Data. Saloni, thank you for joining us. One of the few people who's interesting enough to re-guest. Go you. You are back. (laughs) You are back. How are you going? Good. Yeah. Thank you for having me on again. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed the last episode we recorded. So this is going to be fun. Jesus. No, yeah. No pressure. Thanks. Thanks heaps. That was ages ago. 126. That was on the, um, the division of scientific labor. But you're back. And, uh, we want to talk about your recent piece. Uh, in works in progress on peer review. But before we get into that, um, I want to talk about, uh, big cheese or more specifically big Norwegian cheese. Now you may have seen the news, <laughs> you may, you may have seen the news that, um, that, uh, eating a very specific brand of Norwegian cheese, Jarlsberg, the pride of Norway, um, has, has amazing health benefits. <laughs> so this is, um, this has come up in the news. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, Saloni. I know you saw this, James. Um, <laughs> Interesting, interesting one. Initial thoughts about this, uh, about, about this, James? Oh, yeah, that's super easy to summarize for once. I won't shit on endlessly. You ready? Go. <sighs> Captured. That's it. That's beautiful. It. <laughs> all the, all the, all the required detail, all the appropriate pathos. Yeah. Um, it's was this funded by the cheese company? I'm guessing. Yes. This was. Yes, this was indeed yes. funded by the um, <laughs> by the cheese company, yeah. by by big by big cheese. Yes, get your big farmer jokes in before they're gone. You know, if it was a market, yep, it would be hot right now. We'd be having a little market run. And I'd be bidding up the price of big cheese jokes. Yeah, but so I, I think let, this is a good. Go, go on, James. Let me let me very briefly explain. There's all these poor fuckers listening. You, you're like, hey, has everyone read my mind as usual? So. Crossover RCT, no less, uh, on Camembert versus Jarlsberg. Uh, the whole idea being that cheese that has vitamin K2, I believe, um, and obviously there's lots of other differences between Jarlsberg and Camembert. Uh, presumably it has less lactose. Presumably it has more salt, more sugar. Uh, it has less water, certainly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the important thing is osteocalcin, McFuck, whatever it's called, which is K2, which I I didn't want to get into this, but part of, uh, I think it was Sato, one of the great, uh, one of the great Japanese mega frauds, um, had some research that crossed over with this, but I can't say enough off the top of my head and I haven't looked into it because my day is not enumerated by cheese, Daniel. Um, and like most of these things, you know, if you want to say, this is good for bone density. You probably, unfortunately, have to stump up the cash and do a study on uh, bone densitometry. You can't go, well, the precursors for creating bone have been created. This result is suggestive. Give me more cheese money. It's more sort of yet another sort of half-pregnant result that comes into the we add a biochemical element to the soup that is already inside you, and we sincerely hope that there's a something falls off the wagon when it comes to the other side. It's just funny because the media gets a hold of it and start to report that cheese is good for you. You know, it's delicious though. 
I mean, seriously, if they found out that people people who had higher, like very slightly higher lead content in their blood bizarrely lived for a year longer, the Metro would be writing bullets are good for you. It's, it's toss. <laughs> it's toss because it's always toss. Nutritional epidemiology is a waste of money and a lot of the mechanical investigations into it are not much better. Uh, it's only funny because it has a cheese element, Daniel, much like a sandwich. I think this is a good demonstration of the system working. The system being that um, the the conflicts are right there in the paper. You can read them. Um, this wasn't mentioned in a lot of the the media write ups, of course. Um, but you can you can read the conflicts in the paper, and you can see that this is sponsored or this is partly funded by the cheese company. Maybe they just got free cheese. I mean, maybe it's not about the cash. <laughs> I mean, de- declarations. Obviously, it's appropriate that the COIs are declared in all possible circumstances. They were always going to say it. But you never know when it's a big basket. Occasionally, I mean, you, you, anything that's like this is always designed to represent an interest. And it's very difficult to pick out what is the presented interest in its sub-elements. Why do they make specific design decisions? Why did it go through this particular period of time? Why was A measured and not A2, the normal way of engaging with A? And it's very difficult to pick that apart. And, of course, this is where the, the sort of big pharma tropes come from, you know, like, oh, the 1,200 people with Alzheimer's all got this drug. The big pharma's this at work. I mean, the obvious pat answer to that being, well, who the fuck else is going to fund it, sunshine? Um, you know, you better do a whip around down the local bowling club because it's going to cost a fuck ton to get that drug to market. They literally do the work. I'm not sure what you were expecting. Um, so I'm going to include my regular caveat of it's nice to have conflicts of interest declared when everyone else's undeclared conflicts of interest are so much fun to deal with in all other circumstances. No more cheese, Dan. No, no more, more cheese. cheese. And no more getting me into trouble with the, the, the seven people that you've met in Norway who are going to hear this <laughs> and then think that this is some kind of uh, nationalist attack on your cheese industry. <laughs> The, the cheese is delicious. It's good. Eat, eat cheese because it's <laughs> because it's because it's tasty. Eat I must it's tasty. I must admit. I must admit. It's a. It's slightly nutty. If I'm thinking of Jarlsberg the right way, yeah. so it's, it's it's reasonably yellow. I'm no good with colors. I really. It, it is. Uh, it's reasonably yellow. It's got holes like like Swiss cheese, yes. but not quite as big. And it's kind of a little bit sweet, and it's quite nutty. Yeah. I think it makes an absolutely superb toasted cheese sandwich. It's very um, nice. I like I to use two to, cheeses I, in a toasted cheese sandwich, and I would be very, very happy if Yalsberg was one of them. There's my, there's my COI. I'm a greedy fuck. I have to declare a meta COI. Um, I'm actually funded by their competitor. <laughs> <laughs> Butter. <laughs> yeah. Salerni, so, so, so any dairy-based conflicts of interest to report before we get started? You know, I, I tried out um, – lactate for the first time yesterday so i'm partly lactose intolerant and i didn't even realize until a few years ago and oh wow it's just this like pill that contains lactase the enzyme that breaks down lactase that lactose intolerant people don't have Mm -hmm. and yeah for real you know a nice meal of cheese that went down well and i didn't need any you know bathroom emergencies after that's great that's the win. Yeah, it worked out for you. I have a friend who's so lactose intolerant that I keep those pills in my house. <laughs> wow! Because, um, yeah, because otherwise, you know, poor Willie, he might just he might just blow up. 
you know. Um, yeah, because I mean, that when they work, I know they from memory they don't work for everyone, but when they do work, apparently they're they're an absolute godsend. So there you go. We should Let's we should get you, get you some funding funded by Big Lactate. Big Lactate. <laughs> Let's let's talk peer review. Um, we're going to post a link to to your piece, um, which is titled Re- "Real Peer Review Has Never Been Tried." I, I like that. But before we get into that, I, I want to talk about something that you you spoke about in your piece, which is the general history of peer review. How did this actually take place in the start? We know how peer review happens right now, um, and we could almost take for granted, almost assume that's the way it's always been, not necessarily electronically, but maybe with setting letters back and forth or faxes or whatever you did. But what is the history of peer review? How did this take place in the past? Yeah, uh, great question. So I, I think what's interesting is that the way that we talk about peer review makes it sound as if it's the system that's just always existed. That's just the standard way that we do things. Um, and in fact, the, the history is very different from that. So most journals only um, introduced peer review as a requirement in the 1970s. Um, and the way that everything began, I guess, was, I think, the Royal Society's uh, journal Philosophical Transactions was the first journal to have peer review. Um, and so the Royal Society is this organization in the UK, and they had they had all of their own activities uh, that they were doing, but they also ran a journal. And the journal editor, um, this was in 1667, I think, uh, the journal editor uh, was a man named Henry Oldenburg, and he kind of just published any pieces, any kind of papers or pieces of research that people sent to him without very much discretion. He didn't send it out to anyone else um, for review. Uh, and this kind of continued during his tenure. And it was about 90 years later um, when a different uh, a botanist called John Hill started producing like satire and critiques of the way that they had been publishing research in that journal. So, um, you know, he would just make it seem as though the society was endorsing the research that was published here and that like, you know, a lot of the quality, a lot of the research quality was very low um, in, in that journal because it was just up to this one guy who was deciding what, what should be printed. Um, and in response to that um, critique and satire, they decided to introduce peer review um, at the level of like the editors. So they would have, they would have the council of the Royal Society look at, submissions and then decide what to publish um, and then eventually that expanded into the fellows of the society um, and then they would send it out to other scientists um, but it only really became a requirement for all papers I think in the 18th century um, and that is much earlier so that was uh, not only the first journal but it was one of the only journals to do that um, until the 1950s to 70s um, and the reason that many journals adopted it after that time uh, was because they were receiving so many submissions that you would have to curate at some level the, the papers that you published. Um, so before the 1960s or so, most journals would just have a few, like a small team of editors who would usually just decide on their own what should be published and then occasionally send it out to their friends or reviewers. And it was in, in response to criticism and like reputational um, you know, things like that that 
that that made them decide that we should send out papers to reviewers who have the special speciality to decide what's good enough to print. So side side point that I think is interesting, although that this is uh, this is fantastic. Um, I've presented on this multiple times, and not only have you done it better than I've presented on it because it's more it's more interesting. Um, but it's obviously way fresher, and you're going to tell it heaps better. So I'm just I'm just sitting here loving it because this is way better than I was. Twenty minutes of angry bullshit. This is this is just ideal. Um, Thank you. A side point that occurred. To- <laughs> it's great. <laughs> this is so. This is like the, any any responsibility for the content here just like shuffled right off. Fantastic. Um, so side point that occurred to me when I was uh, talking about this once before. The difference between a pre-1970s journal um, and a post-1970s journal is not as much different from what people think of now because people have a tendency to split this into two categorical eras, right? I mean, obviously, there's a a 19th century. There's all sorts of other shit, you know, one mad bastard in a room at Oxford, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole – when you have a big enough journal, there is so much triage going on between a team of editors to begin with and whether or not things actually get pushed into the pipe in the first place. There's so much triage going on that maybe 80, 85% of the content that's coming into the journal is still acting in the same way as we did pre-peer review because the do we send this out for review in the first place decision is still at the editor's discretion. It's still entirely binary. It's very difficult to argue with them. If you've ever written back, your paper isn't interesting. Yes, it is. I promise it is. Uh, I, I don't, I've never heard of anyone having that work. Um, and I th- it's, a little bit, it's a little bit of a distortion when people talk about it sometimes as if it's some enormous difference. Uh, I think it's made a tremendous amount of difference to the journals that really proliferated after that happened where it's far more likely to have something sent for review and it's far more likely to be into a community of people that is either local or so within a country or a region or highly focused on a topic or a subtopic. And those are far more likely to act as a peer-reviewing community when journals like Nature and Science, are like 80% of the workflow is exactly the same. Um I hope that wasn't too distracting. Please continue to be no, great. No, that that was a that was a great point. Yeah. So um that's like another thing that people don't realize, I think. Um I can imagine that there is definitely a use for that in that like if you did just publish, you would want somebody to just gatekeep the spam out of your journals. Uh and so it does make sense to have like some degree of that, but it's also not that different to have zero peer reviewers as they did before that era and now like one to three. That's not a big piece. You said something interesting before in that a peer review was a response to them receiving too many papers. And it's kind of weird to think that back in the 70s, they were worried about there are too many papers when we're, the deluge that we're actually experiencing now, which is, <laughs> which is collapsing the system. Uh, some people have actually proposed this idea that there should be paper limits that authors should only be allowed to submit, you know, three, four, five papers a year. Um, say this was actually somehow enforceable. Do you think this is a good idea, Saloni? 
Um, I I don't think that's a good idea. I, I think there should be lots more research. I think the problem is that the peer review system creates this kind of bottleneck and like backlog and how quickly research is published, but also the quality of the review that happens. Like we could have review happening outside of journals as well that that contributes to like the quality without, you know, saying that we should only have a few papers published a year. Mm. Something like well, something like pub here. Yeah, I mean, Dan, if you if you did that, sorry, if you did that, you're just going to end up with a thing that's called a not paper, or as we call it, a preprint, or some shit that's written down in a place. Yeah, you can't stop people from having outputs, and the outputs are already tracked when they're not articles. So I think the ship has sailed. Honestly, on can we actually do so if it's practical? You know, well, if it's practical, James, would you love to live on the moon? I mean, well, <laughs> it's, it's just, I mean, I would, but it's also like, it's just, it's just not. I think the, um, I, I think that's a gate horse bolted kind of situation, man. Um, because we, because we, we already formally track things that aren't papers. It's just, um, it's, it's, it's kind of already been defined out of existence, I feel. I think we're probably on the same side, Saloni. I've always considered this to be a, a curation problem, a problem with the curation process rather than a problem with the volume. Yeah, it's I everyone mean, everyone else who's heard this like, podcast before. Yeah, him again. <laughs> Go on, sorry. We, we also kind of think of like preprints as like a new kind of phenomenon, but like in some fields, like economics, they've been used for decades, right? And also maths, I think. Um, and so I think people will always find different ways to publish things and to limit how they work in journals is kind of, to, it's like you're already publishing this stuff on the side, but then you also have this obligation to get it printed in a reputed journal that slows you down on that side as well. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm for that. Um, but on the other point that you made about um, up here, so... A lot of what I mentioned in this article is about all other kinds of peer review that are already happening. So just like preprints are a different way to publish uh, research outside of journals, there's also stuff going on on PubPeer. There's also critiques going on on blogs, on Twitter, um, in the news even. Um, and like all of that, I think, is also really important on like crucial peer review that doesn't really get acknowledged for how important it is. I like the um you, you you touch on some alternative ways of doing that, include including pub here. Um, another thing that you mentioned is the the F one thousand format, in which you basically you publish your paper. It it acts like like a preprint. It's out there and it is reviewed is um, post post publication. It's a very interesting system. Um, I, I've always wondered why it isn't more popular. Why more journals haven't or more publishers haven't done something similar because it seems to solve a lot of problems. Do you, do you have any ideas around that? Why this post-publication peer review isn't is more popular than it is, or the, the F one thousand format isn't is more popular than, than it currently currently is? Um, I I sort of think about it like uh, the the thing that journals have is their repute and like their they kind of act as a credential for what's published. And so if you have a paper that's already published online before 
it's gone through their curation phase. It's almost like saying that that's not necessary for our publication. And maybe it's, maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's this idea that if we have peer review after publication, then the journals aren't really contributing to what, what research that's published. But I mean, that's just, that's just a thought. I don't know. Maybe there's some other reason for that. And part of the reason for the lack of broad adoption is it's $1,350 fucking dollars to publish in the damn thing. Um, it's just, I mean, if you're not, if people aren't putting things into it, they're not going to be committed to it for other reasons. Like, I mean, I would never consider doing that. I was on the PJ train when it came to like paying for something like that years and years ago. I have a lifetime subscription. Um, even if, even if this was still relevant, uh, like, I, I can't see I can't see benefits to getting into it simply because that's that's enough money to keep a lot of people in a lot of places out, and it just uh, I think that's a part of the like the emotional barrier to adopting it, and <clears throat> I don't know I mean this is just my impression but I look I like the post publication review strategy that's there as well, but I'm really struggling to think of more than like one or two and I couldn't even tell you which they which they were publications that are on that platform where you've gone, oh, this is genuinely transformative. I think of a fucking million preprints and different journal articles and fancy old journals and, and, and different articles and fancy new journals and plus one and frontier stuff and even shit like like Dove Press and Pergamon. And you're like, oh, they, they, they did have that one paper that was good. And I'm fucking struggling to think of where are the, all the really great F1000 articles. <laughs> um, I mean, they had an idea. It's it, It's... That that's that's the element. I think uh, I think it's a for profit as well. Honestly, at the end of the day, and it's much easier to start something like that when you get into the community with a different kind of focus, with a different kind of vibe. You know, I feel like the adoption would have been. The, the, I think the adoption curve would have been much faster at the start. It would have become more normal more quickly. Um, it's just it's very it's very hard. It's very, very hard to start any journal thing like that. Um, and I think if people are less willing to publish in it, they're less willing to hang around and do post-publication review. I have seen a few papers that, um, yeah, the paper's out there and it seems like they struggle to actually find the reviewers. They'll have one reviewer who's saying stuff and it's been there for a couple of years and you're wondering what, what's going on with this paper. Uh, another interesting thing that you brought up in this piece, Saloni, was this suggestion of having some sort of platform that editors can access. Uh, I mean, peer review, there's, there's a lot of issues, but one of the biggest issues that are happening right now is a lot of people are having trouble finding reviewers. We hear story after story of people saying, I have had a paper um, with, uh, at the, on the editor's desk for nine months and, I got re- and, and it got returned because and the editor told me we could not find reviewers. Sorry, here's your paper back. Uh, you suggested some sort of platform in which editors have an idea of one, researchers' expertise, but two, their availability. Um, tell us more about this idea. Yeah, so so I think what's interesting about like the way that peer review works is that it's not really working for any of the three people involved. So it's not really working for the researchers. It takes so much time to get uh, reviewers to read and comment on your articles. It doesn't really work for the reviewers either. They kind of are struggling to put it um, to fit it into their schedules and like with all of the other full-time research and work that they have. 
And then it's also a struggle for editors who are struggling to find reviewers. So the idea behind this platform was to find a way to get all of the relevant information together so that you could smoothly match researchers with reviewers. Um, That might happen like before journals are picked. So I think the, an example that I gave uh, was the university application system. So in the US, when you're applying to a university, there are lots of different applications that you could submit to. So there are lots of different colleges and each, and many of them have like different applications. So you'll be submitting like different personal statements and different essays, all for just having acceptance into a single university and probably in the same in one subject or that you're interested in. Um, and if you compare that to the UK system, it's completely different. So we have one centralized platform called UCAS, where everyone applies for an undergrad, or almost everyone applies for an undergraduate degree. You have your one personal statement, uh, you submit all of your grades onto this one platform, and then you select which universities you want to apply to. They get to access that information, and then they get to make an offer to you based on that. So like this is, it could, it, it, I feel like it would be quite a radical change in terms of like how you would actually get journals to agree to work on this platform together. But at the same time, it would solve a lot of their problems as well as problems for researchers. So the, the lack of time availability, if you had a way to track how much time or like how many reviews each researcher was already doing so that they're not you know, overstretching themselves or just which skills they have. Like maybe there'd be some reviewers who are happy to comment on the stats section of a paper and some who are happy to comment on the visualizations and so on. Um, things like that, that would help people match reviewers. Uh, there is a thing like that in the US. It's called Common App. Um, I don't know if it does all the colleges. It's a nonprofit from memory. Um, and I think, you know, when people go, oh, the acceptance rate here is only 17%, I think a lot of it is because people are just nerfing out all the different applications through Common App at the same time. But it's not fully centralized like it is in the UK. This is just a service that's available. And someone saw the ability to build something that would help high schoolers have less raised blood pressure, which shouldn't be possible at their age. Um, and built it. I don't know much about it, but you know, it's about a thousand participating universities, and you can you can knock it all together. So there's a few services for that, but because obviously so much more shit here is privatized, um, I don't know how you'd ever get a mandatory version where you go. These are all the higher education institutions. Apply for the ones that you think fit your Malone. Um, I I don't I don't know how that would even happen, but. Yeah, I mean, these, these, these things have been floated before um, and it's, it's obviously, it's like the natural progression of being able to do this with all the people in the same place because Im- imagine being an editor for the first time, like Dan, you know, you've got, your, you've got your glasses, you've got your fancy beard, you've got your serious hoodie that doesn't say fuck and you sit down <laughs> for the first, the first day and they give you some training on a PDF or something, and shit just starts coming in at you. And they go go out and find these people. They give you some tools. But at the end of the day, it's not organized. It's a stochastic process, and it's it's determined by, like, you maybe, maybe you put things into I, – I know that there are some – 
tools that publishers have that allow you to find things. But it's not it, it, there's there's no collective organization around that. There's no there's no service that does that. You can't see like a network graph of everyone in the field, and you can just click the twenty closest people and have have the thing uh, actually immediately sent to to people who are connected to it. Um, and it it makes it makes perfect sense in context. It's just I often I, I wonder how things like this are structured. Like who do we who do we have to pay? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know, that's okay. the question. Yeah, because I mean, don't don't rely on Uncle Sam. He ain't doing shit. Um, so yeah, I mean maybe it's easier in the UK where occasionally things are organised. You you spoke about interesting studies, Saloni, where they did actually pay reviewers, or this was a trial on the impact of paying reviewers on response times. And lo and behold, when you pay them, I think it was a hundred US, they re- they re- they return their reviews faster. Who would have thought paying reviewers <laughs> for their time would have done this? <laughs> I'm just but, gonna not, I'm just gonna not talk for this. Week. Yeah, <laughs> I so do want to talk about. Are- um, you mentioned something interesting about review. Yeah, sorry, go on, please. Okay. So, so there are a few journals currently that do pay reviewers. Um, I think there are two economic journals uh, that do that, and also Peer J, I think. Um, and so, this was a experiment published in 2014 um, off this big. Uh, I think it was an economics journal where they tested like four different um, different treatments. So they had they had the control where a reviewer would have to submit their reviews within six weeks and then they had another um another arm where people were given a hundred us dollar reward if they if they've sent in their reviews in four weeks instead and they also just had a normal shorter deadline of four weeks to see if that it was just because of that um difference and then finally they had a situation where the amount of time that reviewers uh, or like the amount of time that they took to submit their reviews were posted online um and so each of those interventions works, but the cash reward was the most effective. I think yeah. one thing you mentioned there's a lovely before. there's a lovely bit where it goes really steep down right in front of that deadline. <laughs> oh yeah, it's going along. Oh, like, hundred bucks. Oh, that's because that's you know that's that's beer money. That's that's my, I've already I've already read it. I might as well get it finished. That's get it, beer get money. it in there. Yeah. <laughs> Reviewer specialization, it is an interesting point you brought up. Often when we review papers and we're asked to review papers, we're kind of expected to do the whole thing. You need to be very knowledgeable in the history of the field, in all the methods used, and and all all the sort of topics that, that, that were discussed within the paper. But that's not re- really realistic. And I think a lot of reviewers or potential reviewers put off by that. They see the abstracts and they go, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I think earlier this year, I was a reviewer, got in t- uh, an editor got in touch with me going, here's a paper. I know you don't know this entire field, but there's one section of the paper that I know you know. Can you review this? And I only expect you to review this part of the paper. I'm like, yeah, for sure. Bring it on. Being upfront with that expectation of this is what you're good at and this is what you can do, I was way more likely to say yes. So this recognition that different people have different forms of expertise, I think this, hey, it may increase the number of reviewers you have for a paper, but uh, hopefully it means that you're getting more specialized advice. I, I like this idea, and I wish this would be more uh, more explicit within the re- within the review process. Right. Yeah. It's so it's it's partly that, but it, I feel like it's also partly that there are lots of useful things that people can add to 
to make a paper better that are not like an overall change. Like you don't have to be able to read a research paper in order to check somebody's code and make sure they've got things in the right order or things like that. Like, and all of these different functions, even maybe image sleuthing or, you know, checking the figures are not duplicated or whatever. All of these things are also important parts of the review process, or should be important parts of the review process. And you don't have to expect that everyone's going to be able to do all of these things. Mm, well, <clears throat> the one thing that sticks in my craw, the one thing that I re- have you read uh, Cole, Cole et al. 2015? Because I wish you put, I wish you put this in. It's a Duke called Graham Cole uh, in an epidemiology journal, and his work is he did. There's a couple of papers, um, because it's actually really easy to study peer review, um, because people are already expected to be contacted by shit randomly. It just turns up. You send them exactly the same thing. You give them some instructions. On um, the entire thing is digital. Um, people are used to saying yes. They're generally sort of socially incentivized to say yes to random fucking requests they get. So it's actually reasonably easy to study the peer review process. Um, overall, 95.3% of discrepancies were missed. Hell yeah. Right? So how do they get the discrepancies? They put the discrepancies in themselves. And it's exactly the kind of silly shit that me and all the people who work near me and around me and not that I'm the fucking middle of it, but people who do my sort of shit, right? Exactly the same kind of stuff we go looking for if there's a broader pattern of problems. 95% of any individual reviewer, any individual discrepancy, 95% of those missed. Most participants were unable to find any discrepancies, 62%. Only 11.5% noticed more than 10% of the discrepancies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And this is a reasonable sample. They got 260 participants of people who are expecting to be contract- contacted for peer review in the first place. And bear in mind, this is in a study where they were telling people, look for the discrepancies. So it's just not how it works. And it's such an overwhelming, like, shit-kicking refutation of the idea that it's going to help in any way, shape, or form. It's just the wrong mindset to review something versus to forensically review something. Um, that's the only thing I would have added to uh, the, the, the piece that you've got here because – it's like that's it's literally never going to change. The post-publication review obviously is awesome, and the stuff that it finds is really intriguing from time to time. But it's just not only is it not designed for that, but it doesn't work it, it even a little bit like that by accident, or just because people are walking around with their eyes all nice and sharp. It just it just isn't that way. Um. It was, uh, I had a spiritual moment when I saw this fucking paper. It's, I'll put it in the chat that we've got here. There you go. Meet Clogs O'Toole has sent you a message. There, done. Suck it in. <laughs> I am, um, so every time I hear about these, these tools like StatCheck and like uh, these various like image duplication um, detection tools, I just kind of wonder what are the other tools and platforms that could exist that don't exist now? Because maybe there are lots of Me ways too. that we could just, you know automate or like find these things that reviewers miss because they're not looking for them or even if they are looking for them they don't have the skills to find them it's not people don't everyone doesn't have the same skills and these are 
difficult things to do. It just yeah, sounds like an are. extremely difficult spot difference. Um, it, it is. It is. And you have to be a low-down, dirty, suspicious dog to really persist with something where you sort of know that it's terrible and you have to really look. You have to really look sometimes. Uh, you can spend hours finding nothing. It's totally incompatible with regular peer review when it comes to the amount of time spent and the amount of mental energy expended. Um, it's a bit, it's a bit different for image duplication because the people who do it are very, very, very good at it. And generally the evidence is right in front of you. So that makes it pretty awesome. And they're still much better than the, the, uh, the, uh, the image analysis tools that are available, which I've tried and failed at using completely. Um, not because they're complicated, just because they're reasonably primitive. Um, there are, there's lots of things that you could do for that. We run into a problem here. And the problem is, on the left, we have the thing that requires analysis, and on the right, we have the analyst and their tools. Now, we can put anything we like into that bucket, and we can get people who are just regular reviewers to have reasonably automated tools that even with a little bit of basic curiosity would let them really crack open, like, what the hell's going on here? Because, um, you know, we've got the tools, but they're just not particularly accessible. I mean, Sprite Code is available in three different – it's available in R – and Python, and MATLAB. You can have any flavor of it you like. But which dumb fuck is going to start downloading that, figuring out how it works, trying to figure out whether or not it's necessary, and then start smurfing up their own distributions to make sure that what they're looking at actually makes sense in context? It's a big ask. It's a big ask, and a lot of people aren't interested. And if something ha happens that goes wrong, you'd probably want to be a statistician to figure it out and then say something complicated about it. So there's a vanishingly small percentage of weirdos. I accept that. So do all the other weirdos, right? But the big problem is that bucket on the left-hand side. You've got weird things wrapped up in PDFs with funny little uh, funny little symbols instead of mathematical notation. Uh, you've got papers that you can't access. Um, you've got different formatting uh, conventions between different papers. Um, sometimes you've got like lovely XML documents where everything could be reasonably well automated, but a lot of the time you don't, and you especially don't historically. You just generally, you have a, just a shit fire. Um, and there's, there's not a great deal that can be done about that, especially due to what wholesale. We're thinking, how are we going to get this to a point? Unfortunately, the answer is to do something astonishingly boring, and it's to make sure that all the output standards for any place that you'd want to do this allow those tools to work out of the box so we don't waste that poor reviewer's time because she's already busy. Right, There's, you've got two other requests while you're reviewing that one. It's not yes. sort of like, oh, yeah, I saw that big scruffy fuck speaking at a conference. I'm going to download his code. No sensible person says that. It's just not a thing. So, <clears throat> look, I hope that there are lots more observations and exactly what you said happens. It's just, it's one of those layers within layers tasks that's hella annoying. At the very least, journals should be adopting stuff that's automated. Like um, they're they're already automating plagiarism checks. Some are doing stat check as well. Um, but these things you can just you know, put the PDF through a machine. Um, but of course, other stuff like Sprite and Grim, you, you actually need the user to to, to do something. Saloni, you were saying. Yeah, I, I was saying this is this is another like argument for having more specialization in, in the review process. Like there could be people at journals who are just responsible for doing all of that on behalf of the reviewers. Um, I mean, if, if you have one person who learns how to use those tools and apply them to different papers, then they can kind of learn 
how to improve on those tools, how to use them best, and then when those tools improve to learn those things as well. Whereas like you can't really expect a reviewer to keep up with all of the new tools that are available and also juggle their work and the yeah, other parts of the review process. Elsevier should just pay Elizabeth Bick a very high salary and send her all the important papers. There's your, there's your solution. There's your, that's I, there's um, your dumb academic non-scalable solution, picking on yeah. some poor woman, some poor former guest. Pay her Dan. a lot of money. Pay her a lot of money. Yeah, okay. And then, and then have everything be everything be centralized in the same place, you know? What if she gets sick of it because you keep throwing money at her? Then what do we do? <laughs> Find right? other experts. Find yeah. other experts. Yeah, of course. I mean, this is this is the inevitable problem. I mean, whenever you talk about people shit on endlessly in business about scale in some capacity, yeah, it's very annoying, but they've frequently got a point. Which part of this are we going to scale? And if it comes to like relationships that are between people and how they're going to get organized, invariably it's the infrastructure that makes it really easy to sew them together in the first place, right? That's what happens when you have a person at both ends. But the vast majority of things that you end up scaling end up having a digital function, right? So you've just proposed something, Dan, where we're trying to make something work better where it doesn't scale in the digital way, but it also doesn't scale in the human way. So 10 points, I can see why you're in academia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was being a little a little facetious there. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm just <laughs> fucking with you. I you know I love you, you weird-looking prick. I um, I have some interesting, I like talking to my um, my, my sister-in-law. She's a complete layperson. My, my wife is also not a scientist and a layperson, but she understands enough about the process, about me grousing and, and, and just, being generally annoyed about academia at home, but I'll, it's very interesting talking to my sister-in-law because she knows she knows nothing about the process. I was talking to her about a, about a paper that I finished, and then she's like, "This is this is great." So you're just going to submit that to a few journals, and I'm like, well, "No, I have to do it one at a time." And she's like, "Why is that? Why do you have to do it one at a time?" Which is a very good question. I mean, obviously there are some practical reasons why we do that. Um, you don't want to send a, a, a journal, a paper to a journal, and have. 15 sets of reviewers simultaneously reviewing one paper. But I think nowadays with how things can be done electronically, I think there are ways that we can potentially do this where we can send it to a number of editors who can who can consider different papers and almost say, hey, um, I've, you know, I've, I've thought about this. Like, what about having some sort of system where you go like, like a bidding system? Hey, here is my paper. Um, editors, you have a week um, if you're interested let me know, have at it, and the the, the, the best bidder or the most in, in, interested journal, I'll send this to. Uh, I, th- I think this can be done. Do, do you see any limitations with that kind of approach or do you have any other, other ideas around this, uh, this concept of exclusivity within peer review? I feel like that's another application of having a centralized platform. So it could even be like maybe all, of, I don't know, else of those journals where you submit to this one platform that has all of those journals, they review, like people across the journals review your articles and then they decide which one to publish it in after that. I mean, even that would speed up the process, even if it was not between different journal publishers. I guess that's one example of having um, these huge publishers is actually an advantage. Um, but this is this is already kind of happening with the, the, the PCI registered reports initiative where essentially you post your preprint and they organize peer review. If this passes peer review, then there's a list of about 
15 to 20 journals which agree to publish your paper. So if you pass peer review, you do your registered report here. I've actually been a peer review for one of these papers. It's very, very interesting. Once you once you do this and you get your, your paper, which has been approved by peer review, then you can go to any of these 15, 20 journals going, hey, I mean, w- with a few different conditions going, hey, my paper's been accepted. And um, in principle, we're potentially making a few changes, but not requiring more peer review, they'll accept your papers. So this is kind of happening on a, on a small scale, but um, I could see like the big publishers, like they, they control so many journals to have this sort of centralized system. Like let's let, let's get some benefits out of this <laughs> in order to um to, to speed up the process. Yeah, it's a it's a strange thing because I mean another thing that I guess people don't realize very much about journals is that they weren't commercial until the nineteen eighties and so on. Um, they were all run by academic societies individually, and so. It's strange that despite them being acquired by these commercial publishers, not that much has changed. Like as as James mentioned, editors still have so much control over what goes out to peer review. Um, and then we also still have this very long process. We don't have centralization. Um, it seems like a very inefficient system, and I assume that part of that is because the reputation matters so much that you can kind of get away with doing a lot of this. Um, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, there's, a, there's very definitely an artificial scarcity kind of piece to it. Um, it's also, in, in general, this is one of the, I mean, I have to look at a lot of these now just in their own right because of work. This is such a difficult environment for bottom-up innovation. It is so hard to propose a new idea, the new, the new, the new thing, you know? And I've seen so many people try and not be able to get traction, not be able to get, um, in the way that we talk about it, customers, um, or people, people who are going to buy their services. Um, things that are service companies often do quite well. There's plenty of, uh, plenty of services that are needed. People want to buy them for money. They buy them for money. That's the end of the story. So there's, there's, there's plenty of service businesses. But changing how the actual big components are put together, hard as shit, um, very difficult to build, um, but even more difficult to convince people to use. Because the incentive structure starts with maybe we'll shit on about incentives the whole time, but and I don't want to be, I don't want to go on about it endlessly. But it starts with the person in the lab going, "No, oh, that's that seems like the good journal." But that's also regarded as the good journal by people who run your department, the people who are in charge of your department on an organizational level, the government, the pieces of the government that give the money out. The private people who also give the money out, who have more or less the same attitude. Um, in some countries, the <laughs> in some countries, I, I feel like the, uh, the 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 government organizations are more progressive than the sort of private foundations who are going to hand the money out because they're always looking for people who are as venerable as possible to hand the money away, and that veneration is given from a solid process of not changing shit for the last forty years. I mean, if it was so easy to innovate into uh, a space that changes what a journal article is, how it's all 
communicated, how it's structured, um, what the subcomponents of it are, the whole idea that code is part of the publication, data is part of the publication, you know, like what it is. If it was easy to do that, we probably would have stumbled over something that was absolutely kick-ass in the last 40 years. But it is so ossified between these different levels. It's a very, very difficult environment to penetrate. And people have brought all sorts of ideas to me, and I can always find in my head a reason why just manky old fucks are never going to agree to do it that way. Um, I can think of a lot of ways to be disruptive. I can't think of a lot of ways to be constructive. So in general, I haven't tried. Not too could be just because I lack imagination. Um, which I'm perfectly willing to admit to, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you agree with that. I mean, that's just that's that's a perspective. That's an opinion. What do you think? I I would also think that if you, I mean, maybe this is more of a general principle, but if you're a company that's earning so much profit in the way that things are already going, there isn't that much of an incentive for you to make things more efficient because you're already doing pretty well um and i kind of would think that a lot of the problems are because of a kind of lack of competition and then also just not needing to improve yeah for sure you you can't start nature to return of the nature you know people will try they're not going to succeed well there is nature and science then yeah (laughs) nature and science always I want to talk about the uh, finish up by talking about the future of of, of peer review. Um, what sort of stuff would you want to see introduced? Things that we that we haven't necessarily covered so far in the episode. How can we improve? How can we improve peer review? Um, so I th- I think the main thing is to kind of see peer review as a research output. So we have like currently a system where people are voluntarily doing peer review at journals and then we have people voluntarily doing reviews after after publication with all the you know data sleuthing stuff that you guys do and then the image sleuthing and all of these like comments on twitter or blogs um and i think i think a lot of institutions and universities should treat it as just as important as the rest of research like it's it's a these are core aspects of the research process that improves the quality of research, but also kind of take it forward. And it's in the same way that you would have, you know, research that builds upon previous research or that critiques previous research or tries things out in a different way. I feel like review is very, like peer review is very similar to that. And like treating it as a research output then means, you know, funding institutions or funding people and team to like build up new ways of doing peer review um entirely so i i I feel like it's hard to predict what that would look like but you can imagine that it would be something that adapts to the way research is published and shared and produced on that note we we are going to wrap up so saloni where is the best place for people to find you online Uh, on twitter um so my twitter account is at salonian we will post a link to there. We'll also post a link to the uh, to the article we've been talking about about uh, about how peer review can be uh, can be improved. Um, but thanks for thanks for joining us, episode number two. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really fun, and I learned a lot about cheese. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I didn't expect that, but it was it was very fun. Yeah, <laughs> we're all, we're always keen for cheese news here on Hertz. <laughs> <laughs> cheese news. Cut the mic, Dan. <laughs>